and we'll be reading from Psalm 63, continuing our series in the Psalms. Psalm 63, verses 1 through 11. And we have the privilege of having Pastor Bill preach God's word for us this morning. I'll read this passage for us. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We're very glad that you've chosen to join us in worship this morning. Our prayer is that the Lord will use the service to connect you more deeply with him, regardless of where you are on your spiritual journey. We're continuing our series this morning, as Luke said, on praying the Psalms. And it's a series that is trying to ask and answer the question, what do we do with our emotions during periods of upheaval? Whether that's personal upheaval or societal upheaval, upheaval does what? It produces a variety of emotions, and you start to wonder, what am I supposed to do with these things? What do I do with my feelings? And we noted last week that there are two easy, bad ways of handling our emotions. One, you can stuff them down, you can ignore them, pretend they don't exist, just try to get on with life. Or secondly, you can overvalue them to such an extent that you're controlled by them, led around by them. Those are two dysfunctional ways of handling your emotions, stuff them or be enslaved by them. And scripture offers you a third option, much better option. It says, bring those emotions before the Lord. Let them be a catalyst to connecting with him. And in that process, you're learning how to respond in a healthy emotive way, a way like God responds to life. And so you don't cut them out of your life. You don't let them consume your life. Instead, they become a means of spiritual growth and renewal. Now, this week, we're looking at Psalm 63, which helps us deal with the emotions that come from living in a hard world. And even though this psalm was written about 3,000 years ago, you realize it's very relevant for today because this world is hard. It's not easy to live in at any time. It's especially hard right now. And if you talk to other people, you'll hear how hard it is. I know some of you parents are really feeling the hardness. You're feeling the frustration. That's actually the mild way to say it. You're used to working and providing for your families, but many of you are not used to working surrounded by your families. Families of energetic young people who can't go outside, who are missing their routines, They're missing their friends, their schedules, their teachers, their activities. They're missing all of those things that make their life normal, and they're coming to you for help. They want help with their classwork. They want help with their tech in order to get to their classwork. They want help with lunch. They want help with snacks. They want help with their boredom. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't know how to do this. I'm not trained for this. I didn't study to become a teacher. 
I don't know what I'm doing there. I'm not getting done the things that I'm supposed to do. And so you go to bed at night with this knot in your stomach thinking, I can't stand the thought of doing this one more day. And then you wake up in the morning and you hear the news that it's not gonna be one more day, that nobody knows how many more days it is, that, there are no, that there's no end in sight. It's not just people who are feeling frustrated because they have children at home. I know of other people who don't have kids at home who are also feeling like they're out of their depth. I know a physical therapist. Her company told her, you now have to practice remotely. And she thought, wait, what? <laughs> How am I supposed to do that? There's no class for that. There's no training for practicing physical therapy remotely. The company said, don't worry, we'll give you guidelines. Well, the guidelines turned out to be, here's how to set up a Zoom account. And she thought, wait, I, that's great, but I still don't know how to practice virtually. Nobody ever imagined that when she was in school. And overnight, you discover what the world's been remade. Our schools were not set up for this. Our workplaces were not set up for this. Our families, the structure of our families were not set up for this. There's no clear fix for this time in life. And the timeline that people keep giving us, we have no confidence in because it keeps changing. It kind of all feels like we're just making this up as we go along. And so people are struggling in a hard world that just got harder. If you live alone, you know that you're even that much more cut off from other people. Young adults, you're discovering something that you thought was not possible, that you actually can have too much screen time. And all you really want is something to do and some place to go. But even when you go someplace, it's not the same as it was. All the goalposts have moved. I don't know if you've had this experience. Maybe you've been shamed in a grocery store because you were going the wrong way and other people let you know that. Or you weren't wearing your mask at a time where other people thought you should be. Or you tried to hand someone cash and they flinched because they don't want to touch anything that you're touching. And it feels very much like you've landed in another country. The social rules are all different. And you, know, you don't know how to do what used to be so easy. The world's been remade. It's hard. And you can hear how hard it is in our responses. You can hear it in the complaints that people have. You can hear it in our irritation, our boredom, our depression. Now, to be fair, everything that I just listed is nowhere near the life and death struggles that many people face around the world. Frankly, everything that I just listed is mostly what? It, it, it's mostly just inconvenient. It's not inconvenient for some, some who have been sickened, they've been hospitalized, they've been in the ICU, some families who have had members die. Okay, for them, it's anything but inconvenient. But for the vast majority of us, we're able to do what? We're able to shelter at home. That's hard, but compared to other parts of the world, we've got it pretty good. I had the privilege of hearing from a church leader in Ghana this past week. He oversees a very large denomination, and he was telling us that Ghana very much believes in social distancing, and so they shut the country down. But they could only keep it shut down for three weeks, because at that point, people had run out of food, and they had to go back to work in order to survive. And so these people, made in God's image, who have as much worth and value as you and I do, these people have to choose between going out and potentially catching a virus that might kill them or facing starvation that certainly will kill them. And you realize then that our lives have been disrupted, but for the most part, we're able to function. Not everybody else can do that. And yet, as this man was sharing, he did it with a positive attitude. He smiled. There was no complaint, no grumbling. 
He wasn't focused on what people didn't have. Instead, he was talking about this as an opportunity for the church, a church that could then reach out and serve other people in their needs, a church that could reach out and communicate the love of Christ to other people and invite them into the family of God. He was very positive, very upbeat, and you, you look at that and you think, how do you get that? How do you face things that are harder than what we're facing and yet be someone who handles them well? Someone who's not cranky and upset, someone who's not depressed and discouraged, someone who's found a way to live with joy. And you look at that and you think, that's beautiful, it's attractive. When you see it, it's something that you want. And you start to ask, well, what, how do you get that? What's the secret to living happy in a hard world? That's what you're offered in Psalm 63. The psalmist David, just absolutely thrilled in the psalm, thrilled with God, caught up with how great it is to know God, to have God be the vital center of his life. And that vital center then has the impact of shaping his emotive life so that he's joyful and, and upbeat. Run quickly through the psalm. What do you hear? Verse 3, he praises God. Verse 4, he blesses God. It's not upset, not complaining to God. Why is that? Verse 5, his soul is satisfied and has the impact of making his lips joyful. Verse 7, he sings for joy. Verse 11, he rejoices and exalts in God. David is just plain thrilled with God. Happy. It's not miserable, not weighed down, doesn't act like it's a terrible burden to have to go spend time with God. You don't get a sense of someone who's sour, someone who's pessimistic. He's focused on God and finds God so rich and so satisfying, he could not be happier. Which is a little odd. Because if you look past what he's saying and what he's feeling, and you look at the larger world that he lives in, it's a really dark world. He says, there are three hard things that I have to face in my life. So the first one is found in the title. The title tells you that you should think of this as a psalm that was written in the wilderness of Judah, whether or not it was or not. You, you, that's sort of the backdrop that tells you about what this psalm is. You're supposed to think of the times when David was being hunted by an army, either by King Saul or his own son Absalom, that time when he ran to this desert-like area, the wilderness of Judah. And what is he thinking about out there in this wilderness of Judah? Verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where is, there is no water. He's saying physically, I'm located in the wilderness, this dry and weary land that's just parched. I know what it is to be physically thirsty, but I also know what it's like to be spiritually thirsty. My soul thirsts. Inside, I thirst. And there is nothing in this world that can satisfy that thirst. My soul, when, when he uses that word here, it means my whole self. My whole self is parched in this world. There's nothing that I can drink in this world that will quench my inner thirst. Everything that I drink in this world just makes me thirstier and thirstier. It's dry, it's weary in this world for my soul. Now, you have to remember here, David's had a lot of good stuff in his life. Doesn't matter whether he's running from Saul or running from his son, he's already experienced lots of good things. He's been married, he's been highly successful, he's risen up in the world, he's lived in a palace, and here's his verdict. After drinking all of those things, after trying all of those things, I've still got a thirst that none of them can satisfy. Now is he saying those things are bad? You realize, no, he's, he's saying, I recognize that I have two different kinds of thirst. I have a physical thirst, 
and I have a spiritual thirst. And if I try to quench my spiritual thirst with physical things, then this is just a dry and weary land in which there is no water. Now that reality doesn't stop people from trying to quench their spiritual thirst with physical things. They often mistake that spiritual dryness for something physical, and so they try the same physical things that David already had. They try relationships. They try careers. They try various standards of living. And what happens when you try those things? Well, you know this. When you try those things, you fill yourself with physical things. Initially, you get some buzz from that, right? You get some feel good, but it's a feeling that wears off. It doesn't last. And if you keep trying to get more and more and more of them, then you start to enter into that place where the returns diminish. You know what that's like. The last spoonful of ice cream is never quite as enjoyable as the first one. So what do people do when the returns diminish? They're still thirsty. They're still spiritually thirsty. But they don't stop and think to themselves, maybe I was never meant to satisfy my soul with physical things. It's not that physical things are bad. It's that they're not the kind of water that I need for the kind of thirst that I have. They can't water my soul. People don't think like that. Instead, people think there must be something wrong with what I was drinking. Maybe I need something new or I should try something different. So this relationship, it didn't quench my thirst. But the next one will. This job has left me feeling dry and dusty. Must be time to get a new one. My clothes, my furniture, they don't spark joy in me anymore. So I need to get new ones. Or this vacation, it didn't water my soul. Let's try someplace different. People try something new, they try something different, and they hope that that will satisfy the thirst they have, only it doesn't any more than those former things did. If that's you this morning, it's time then to stop running to things that you can see. It's time to start thinking, maybe what I have is a different kind of thirst. A thirst for which there is no liquid on this earth. Maybe if I'm still thirsty after trying everything that I find here, maybe my thirst was never meant to be quenched by something that I find here. In other words, if you're feeling thirsty this morning, pay attention to that. Because that thirstiness is telling you something. It's telling you you're missing God. You might be well off, you might be comfortable living in the Philadelphia suburbs, but you're trying to drink from things that cannot quench your thirst. Because what, it's, what is thirsting is your soul. Solution is not to run to something else. Not to go get a new drink of new clothes and furniture or new friends or more videos or uh, a cause to throw yourself into or dreams of like where I'm gonna go when this is all over. That kind of drinking will keep you thirsty. The solution is to join David and say, God, I earnestly seek you. You are as scarce a commodity for my soul in this world as water is in the wilderness. That's one thing that makes this world hard to live in. There's no satisfying soul water in it. Here's a second element that makes it hard. It's a world where your own body betrays you. Verse 6, David's lying on his bed, but he's not sleeping. He's awake. He's awake when most people are completely unaware of what's going on around them. In that moment, everyone else is asleep, and David is very not asleep. Instead, he's aware that the watches of the night are happening. The watches are those different times when guards would be, go around being on duty, know, keeping watch over everybody else so that they were protected. 
And David knows that the watches of the night are happening because he's awake along with them. So here's the picture. He's lying down. He'd like to be asleep. But his body won't let him. Either it won't let him go to sleep or his body, his mind, has woken him up in the middle of the night. Somehow his body is keeping him up when he doesn't want to be. And as a lifelong insomniac, I love this verse. I know all about the watches of the night because I too can count them on any given evening, morning. On a regular basis, I'm up wandering around the house in the dark, just me and the cat, keeping the watches of the night. And whenever I've shared this, I always get people offering me help. Like, Bill, have you tried this new herbal remedy or this special drug or this different routine or my favorite, Bill? You know that scripture says God gives sleep to his beloved. It's really not a helpful verse for someone who chronically can't sleep. I have a friend who used to sleep great. He was a very, very productive man. In the last several years, however, he's had so many health issues and so many surgeries that his body's now broken and it's rebelling and it won't let him sleep. And you realize that in some way, all of us on this planet struggle with something like that. Some way in which this body that we have is broken and just doesn't work right. Something's out of whack in it that somewhere, and it upsets our quality of life. It's a second part of what it's like to live in this hard world. First, there's no ultimate satisfaction in it for your soul. Second, your body doesn't work the way that you wish it would. And as though if that wasn't bad enough, there's a third element that makes life really hard. There are real enemies out there who really don't like you. There are enemies out there who are out to hurt you. Now, if you have the kind of enemies that David had, it's very personal. Verse 9, they're trying to destroy your life. That's the extreme version. Most of us haven't run into that kind of hatred. There's a lot of impersonal hatred in this world. We live in a fairly safe country, but murder and violence are right on the surface too often. There are these random shootings. There's food and drug tampering. And they remind you that out there are these enemies that you don't even know anything about. Now, more often, the danger is less extreme, but it's even more personal. You have people who have tried to undermine you. They've talked badly about your project at work. They've run you down to your neighbors or to your school classmates. Or there are people out there who prey on your fears, on your desires. They just want to sell you something that you don't necessarily need. And so the only way that they think about you is as a dollar sign to enrich their own lives. Those are enemies. Or there are people out there who are racist who demean you and hate you because of your ethnicity, who envy you and feel superior to you at the same time, who are scared of you and what you represent. And so they try to control their out-of-control world by blaming you for all of their problems, for things that you've had nothing to do with. I know a number of you have had that experience recently. There's a lot of different ways that we experience this reality. The bottom line is that not everybody in this world likes you. Not everybody wants what is best for you. You live in a world of enemies. Now, given that backstory, where you live in a dry and weary land with your own body fighting against you, surrounded by enemies, given that backstory, what do you expect to have come out of somebody's mouth? Don't you expect to hear things like, earnestly, I seek to escape all the sadness of my life? I have beheld how little God cares about me. My lips will complain about this rotten life, for God has not been my help or protected me. Don't you expect to hear something more like that? 
That's what I expect to hear. I love that scripture does not sugarcoat life even a little bit. It tells you honestly how very difficult this world is. And you never once find in scripture something that says, if you'll just know God, if you'll just enter into a friendship with him, it'll be all better. He will change everything about this world that you don't like. It never says that. Instead, scripture promises you that even if verse one, you earnestly seek him, and verse eight, you cling to him so that verse seven, you're hiding in the shadow of his wings. Even if you do that, you will only do it in the middle of a very difficult world. I love that scripture is that honest. And yet scripture is equally honest by telling you that a friendship with God matters. That the effect of that friendship on you is gonna be surprising. See, David does, not expect, David does not respond the way that you expect him to. And that's when you realize that seeking God, knowing God, does not change that larger world. It changes you. And it changes how you live in that world. David is not pretending that everything in the world is okay, and yet he has an inner fullness that you can also have, even when life around you is hard, an inner fullness that expresses itself in joy. Now, how do you get that? How do you live happy in a hard world? Well, let's talk first about the attitude that you have to have, the posture toward God that you have to have. David says this is possible, but it's going to take some effort. It doesn't just happen. He says, verse 1, earnestly I seek you. Earnestly. Not half-heartedly, not haphazardly. Earnestly, like the friendship really means something to you. Think here about the, that time maybe when you were dating somebody special that time when, when you were anything but apathetic, where you didn't just let things happen, but you were active, you were engaged, you pursued. Remember how you stayed up way too late just talking with the other person? Or how you fit them into your schedule even when you didn't have time to do that? Remember all those times that you initiated, when you sent them a text, when you emailed, when you FaceTimed with them, where if you were a little more old school, you called. You were earnest. It cost you real effort. Why was that? Because you thought it was worthwhile. Earnestly I seek you. That's what it takes to have this kind of transformative relationship with God. Or you can say a little bit differently, verse 8, my soul clings to you. Again, something very active. You're not sitting back just waiting for something to you know, wash over you, come over you. You're using all the strength that you have at your disposal to grab onto God, to lock yourself around him and not let go, to hold onto him so hard that there isn't anything else that you have energy to hold on to. Do you want to live happy in a hard world? It's going to take some effort. It's worth it. And I can imagine somebody saying, okay, I'm in. I want that. I want joy. <laughs> How do I direct that effort? What do I do with it? David says two things. Number one, you remind yourself of what God has done to save his people in general. And number two, you remind yourself of what he's done for you in particular. You remind yourself of what God's done in general to save his people, and you remind yourself personally what that has meant for you. So first, what God's done in general. Verse two, David is casting his mind back to a previous time in his life. It's a time when he was not in the wilderness, but he could go to the place where God's presence lived among his people. And David, in remembering that time, says, verse 2, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. 
beholding your power and glory. Now, at that point in time, where would the sanctuary be? It wouldn't be in the temple. The temple wasn't built yet. So David is thinking about the tabernacle. Tabernacle was a tent that God's presence lived in among the Israelites. But you didn't go to the tabernacle to see the visible power and representation of God. This wasn't a, a sideshow at the circus. It wasn't a freak show. It wasn't an art installation. There weren't any images there that you could go and say, okay, that kind of looks like God, and I have a better understanding now. There wasn't any of that. You didn't come to the tabernacle to gawk at God, to observe him at, at arm's length. So, you know, he's kind of an interesting curiosity. You came to the tabernacle to relate to him. And you came to relate to him because he wanted to relate with you. That's why the tabernacle was there in the first place. Tabernacle shows up in Israel's history after God rescues them from Egypt. He uses his awesome power, his glory, to set his people free because they were enslaved in Egypt. And when he brings them out of Egypt, he says, now I want you to build me a tabernacle, a tent. You all live in tents. I want one too, so that I can live among you. And so when you went to the sanctuary, when you went to the tabernacle, it's got all those associations with it. The tabernacle is where you're seeing the physical, visible evidence that God loves you, that he loves you enough to rescue you and to save you from the, a greater power than you could ever save yourself from. You're seeing the evidence that he's tied himself to you, that he's obligated himself to do whatever was necessary so that you and he would be together forever. You saw the visible evidence that he loves you. That's why verse 3, his love is better than life. It's better than life because once God obligates himself to you, he never changes his mind. He's never going to come to you and say, you know what? I didn't realize what I was getting into. You're just way too much work and way too much effort. Instead, God keeps using his power and his glory on your behalf to free you from whatever will keep you away from him. His love is better than life because one day, your life on this planet will end, and his love never will. He will love you, what, into eternity. Do you want to live happy in a hard world? You need to remind yourself that there is nothing outside of you, nothing inside of you that is too big for God to overcome. You remind yourself on a regular basis of God's commitment to rescuing and saving his people. And so you allow yourself to think about those large Old Testament passages of salvation. Salvation that what? That pointed to what Jesus would do on the cross. And you allow yourself to remember this is what our God does. He rescues his people because he loves us. You allow yourself to remember that. And you let yourself remember that what he started, he's absolutely going to finish because he loves you. Now, some of us need to know that story a little bit better. And I think here's a great opportunity for a lot of us right now, especially those of us who say, I'm bored. I don't know what to do with myself. There's this opportunity to get to know this God better than you already do. I suspect that a time is coming, not a prophet. I suspect, however, that there's a time coming when this pandemic passes that all of us are going to have to spend a lot more time and energy because I think there's going to be a lot to recover from. The economy will need to recover. People will need to recover. People will need help. We're going to need to reach out. The time for getting to know God better is not going to be at that time. We're going to need to do that now. Now is the time to drink deeply of this God, 
so that you're not parched and weary when that later time comes. So use this time. Spend it now in the scripture. Read the scripture. Study it. Read other books. Learn the nature and character of God. Learn how he wants to relate to you. Learn the big picture themes in scripture that tell you what God is doing in history right now so that you have a better understanding of how you fit into what God's doing right now. Listen, Shakira finished her four-week online ancient philosophy course this last week. If she can do that, you can also spend four weeks in an online course studying and learning. I'd suggest an overview of the scripture or how to be better prepared and equipped to serve God with his people. Study church history. Study apologetics. Study how to make sense of God in a modern world. If you don't know how to study, ask your CG leader for suggestions. Ask one of the pastors. We'd be glad to help you. You have a choice right now. You can crash at night with a video if you want. There's value to that at times. But if that's all you're doing over these next weeks and months, essentially what are you doing? You're pouring sand down a thirsty throat. And you're wondering why you're dehydrated. And you're wondering why God just doesn't seem all that interesting to you. If you're thirsty, if your soul is thirsty, then drink from something that's actually going to revive you, that's going to renew you and restore you. David says, when I'm thirsty, I need to remember that God saves his people in general because he loves them. I think about what I've seen in the sanctuary. But secondly, I need to remember what he's done for me specifically. I need to recall how his general salvation works out for me as a unique individual. And so verse 6, I meditate on him while I'm lying on my bed. I make myself think, verse 7, how he has been my help. I make a list in, all of my in my head of all the things that he's done for me. In other words, you don't need to go to the sanctuary. Nourishing your soul, getting the drink that you need from God can come anywhere you are even in the middle of the night when you can't sleep, which sounds a little counterintuitive to most of us. We live in a society that puts a premium on sleep. We have sleep studies. We have sleep machines. We have whole industries dedicated to perfecting pillows and mattresses, all designed because we absolutely firmly believe that if you don't get enough sleep, you cannot live a healthy, productive life. And then you pull up alongside Psalm 63 and realize it changes the question. It invites you to stop asking, did you or did you not get eight hours of sleep last night? Instead, it invites you to ask, what did you focus on if you happened to be awake when you didn't want to be? Were you focused on why you couldn't sleep? Were you focused on being anxious? Were you focused on some upsetting thought? Were you focused on what you needed to do in order to get back to sleep? Or were you focused on the God who loves you and rescues you personally. Did you take that opportunity, when you had nothing else to do, did you take that opportunity to review where verse seven you've experienced his help? Did you review those times when you've been under the shadow of his wings, times when you've been protected by him and you know that you have? See, part of earnestly seeking God, part of clinging to him, means that you meditate on what he's done in your life. You make that list of all the things that he's done. Now, it's a little bit different for some of you who have been told you need to count your blessings, okay? That, 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 that's not really what Scripture is saying here. It says make that list. Why? Because you're not focused on those blessings. You're focused on where those blessings come from. 
and you're focused on the personal love of God. And so that generic, abstract, God loves his people and rescues them, takes on a personal cast. And you start to understand, no, God loves me. And I've seen it in my own life. And when you see his personal love for you, his power and his glory used on your behalf, it changes you. You start to sing for joy. Why? Because you know that you're loved. It's amazing anytime someone loves you. When you start to get on board with the fact that the one who made the entire universe loves you, joy will start to bubble up inside of you. If you want to live happy in a hard world, you need to sit down and make a list of all the ways that God has helped you and trace them back to his personal care for you. It'll change how you feel and it'll change what you say. See, in a hard world, you only have two options of what comes out of your mouth. Either you will praise the God who loves you and, in the middle, and, and loves you in the middle of a hard world, or you'll complain about how hard it is to live here and how much you don't like it. You're either going to speak about the one who quenches your thirst and totally fills you up, or you're going to speak about the thirst. You are going to focus on one or the other. You have no choice. And what you focus on is going to come out of your mouth. All the rest of us will hear that. Do you want to be joyful? Do you want to be so deeply satisfied that there isn't room for any more goodness to get stuffed in? If that's what you want, then seek the Lord like you seek nothing else. Prize his love above everything else in life. Meditate on his goodness, even at these weird, odd moments in the middle of the night. Cling to him. Do that, and you'll be filled with real joy, even in a dry and weary world with a broken body surrounded by enemies. That's what you need to do if you want to have that kind of joy. Which means if it's left up to me, I'm going to be left out. I'm never going to have that. Because left to myself, I'm just not that passionate about God. I don't always put him above everything else. My love for him is not anywhere near what his love is for me. And thankfully, if you think about it, you realize neither was David's. He could see that God's love is where the source of joy comes from. He could see that God's love is better than life. And yet, if you know David's story, you know that there were times when he thought life was better than God. Times when he wanted the love of another man's wife, Bathsheba, more than he wanted the love of God. Times when he wanted the protection of a large army, more than he wanted the protection found under God's wings. And so you think, well, what hope then do we have of living joyfully in a hard world if the author of the psalm who knew what needed to be done couldn't do it? What hope do we have? Our hope is that we're not left to ourselves. Our hope is verse 11. The king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David is the king who wrote the psalm, but he's not the king that we need. David couldn't rule his own heart, much less rule yours or mine. David couldn't stop the lies, lies that told his soul that he would be best satisfied if he just ignored God and drank from the physical world around him. He believed those lies, the same lies that you and I believe. And he needed to be just as safe from those lies as you and I need to be saved from them. David needed a different king, a king to save him from his enemies and a king who would rule his own heart. David had to wait, along with the rest of God's people, for that better king. He had to wait for Jesus. 
someone who was in the line of David, someone who was a king, but a much better king than David. And Jesus would come, this king who would thirst for God alone to satisfy his soul. This king who would prize God's love above his own life, who would choose loving and serving God, even if that meant losing his own life. A king who would cling to God even while dying on the cross. A king who would say from the cross, I thirst, I'm dry, parched. Not merely physically thirsty, but abandoned by the God that he loved. He would die his soul thirsting for God and he would find only a dry and weary land instead. He did that to take away your sin so that springs of living water would then flow up in your soul. Because what you can't do for yourself, you can't fix your own heart, you can't keep yourself loving God. What you can't do for yourself, Jesus did for you so that you would have joy. That's the promise of verse 11, that after living in a hard world, the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The king will rejoice in God. He will rise from death. His enemies defeated, their mouths stopped for a purpose, so that his people will exult. The king is one who rejoices, but he doesn't rejoice alone. His people also rejoice, they exult. God, Jesus did what we could not do, so that we now join him in what he does. Do you want to live happy in this hard world? Remember that king and trust him. Trust his love. Trust his salvation. Don't think about it in an abstract way. Make sure that you trust it for yourself personally, knowing that he loves you. Notice where he's already helping you, already defeating your enemies. Look forward to that day when you will rejoice, where your voice is going to be heard right alongside his. Do that. Make that list today so you'll start to feel his joy bubbling up inside of you even while you live in a hard world. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the king that we need. Lord, you always knew that we're the ones who are slowly getting up to speed with that. Lord Jesus, come and rule over our hearts. Be the Lord of them so that our hearts are healed, that they're right that we push aside the lies, that we find ourselves pursuing you, thirsting for you, wanting you, clinging to you. Lord, what you started, you absolutely will finish. Give us that confidence today. In Jesus' name, amen.